0: welcome to the bloomberg surveillance podcast i'm tom keen daily we bring you insight from the best in economics finance investment and international relations find bloomberg surveillance on apple podcasts soundcloud bloomberg.com and of course on the bloomberg we're going to get right to this interview we have two incredibly uh, exceptional guest with us today and it is an honor to have them here together and we're going to speak on one theme. Lord Tyson needs no introduction to anyone within our economic academics and particularly within public service. She is a former uh, a chairman of the President's Council of, uh, of Economic Advisors uh, and is also teaching at the University of California at Berkeley Haas School. With us Each and every year, it seems, at Davos, maybe I think that's correct, is Kenneth Rogoff. His book of uh, last year, The Curse of Cash, was my book of the year. I make a joke that the next effort will be the curse of Bitcoin. But to have the two of you here with your academics, I want to clear the air on the debate at the end of 2017, which is do tax cuts drive economic growth. The center points of this was Kevin Hassett, uh, Professor Tyson, who has your job now mm-hmm. at the White House, uh, Chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, and the laureate Paul Krugman of Princeton, I'd say driving the dialogue with many others, Ken, uh, Ken. As, as we saw. Ken, out of Opsfeld, Rogoff, out of your other uh, work over the years, is there a certitude that tax cuts can drive permanent economic growth?
1: Well, okay. I mean, lower tax rates, if you could somehow magically produce the government spending and revenues you need from oil or something else, Mm -hmm. sure. But, you know, in the long run, uh, you have to pay for government services. And by the way, in this age of inequality, it's just really hard to imagine how government services and transfers aren't going to rise over time. It's. I do. Th- you know. I. I certainly see the case that tax cuts do bene- You know, have a benefit compared to, uh, government. You know, some something that raises taxes mm-hmm. over the long run. But uh, I have enormous respect for Kevin Hassett. Uh, I think he's. But. The figures were very optimistic on what the growth would be.
0: Uh, Professor Tyson, you're nodding your head. I think of Rick Michigan at Columbia and you is linking in core economics into, okay. we're in the room in Washington and now we have to affect policy. How do you respond to the certitude that Kevin Hassett has to deal with from Trump supporters and from, frankly, direct White House officials representing the president?
2: So I would say, first of all, it's important to recognize the role of the Council of Economic Advisors, which is to give objective, unbiased uh, advice. And I think one of the criticisms of the, of the work that was done by the CEA uh, is that really it was a selective choice of evidence. It was the most optimistic evidence. There's plenty of evidence that tax cuts will generate growth. I think what was actually off-scale there was the magnitude, and particularly the magnitude for wages, because essentially I would say, look, in the past we already know that productivity enhancements have not been turning into wages already. Uh, we've now given a major tax cut to businesses. I supported that. I actually supported that. But I think we ca- there were ways to pay for it. We chose not to do that. Other countries that have cut tax rates for business to increase investment have increased taxes on the owners of capital, have increased value-added taxes, have found another right. revenue source, a carbon tax. Why, why not say, okay. OK, growth from cutting some business taxes, we got to pay for it. Otherwise, it's going right. to defeat itself.
0: One of the great things about Davos is I can see Peter Orszag, and 10 minutes later see Douglas Elmendorf, and they're the ones that have worked at CBO mm-hmm. over the years. Does Laura Tyson have in her head the percentage deficit to GDP that is a trip point for the president? or at three point something and there's a great certitude a trillion dollars here. I'm going Dirksen on you, Ken. A trillion dollars there. <laughs> is there a point where you you worry is it five, is it six, is it seven percent?
2: Look, I, I don't I think and I'll I think I should get Ken here as well. I think the general view uh that I've Thought about is you know a projected deficits in the three to four percent range. Right now, the global capital markets and the way they're behaving, and U.S. investors and mm-hmm. the way they're behaving, that is sustainable for the U.S. We're talking about a long term. We, we have fundamentally now reduced the <laughs> taxation uh, share of GDP to a level which just does not match right. the long run sustainability. That's classic.
0: So, that's classic Tyson linking and policy. Ken, how do you respond to it with all of your research with carbon? And Reinhardt, do you worry that we're going to trip the deficit to GDP? Are we going to be talking about twin deficits in a few years here at Davos?
1: Well, no, but I mean, I think the reality of the debt rhetoric in Washington is that whichever party is uh, out of power Mm -hmm. thinks that debt and deficits are bad because the party in power is spending it on their priority, their friends, their base— And so you go back and forth. I mean, maybe the Republicans talk about it a little more, but if you look around the world, uh, a lot of the conversation about debt is really, hey, wait a second, I might be in power in four years and you're spending my money. If you're doing this spending, I won't be able to do as much. But no, I mean, I said the U.S. has enormous borrowing capacity. The Mm -hmm. dollar has Mm -hmm. become uh, more powerful than it was under Bretton Woods. Right. But you are spending, Future money. Future it is so hard. Um, obviously, it's going to mm-hmm. be harder to raise spending and taxes. That, remember, that was Ronald Reagan's rationalization right. for why he was doing the tax cuts.
2: I think that's the rationalization. You know, I was listening to this issue of closing down government. One way you can gradually close down government is just to denude it of revenues. And so there was a significant part of this uh, momentum for tax cuts mm-hmm. coming from the group of people who want to significantly reduce the size mm-hmm. of government. And if the money not there, you're going to have to reduce the size. So we've heard from people saying the next step is entitlement reform. That is, the next step is going to be work requirements on everything to kind of reduce the amount of spending. Uh, Not to mention things like spending on basic science or infrastructure. I'm waiting with bated breath (laughs) to see the infrastructure plan here. Absolutely.
0: You wonder where it is and I guess you could also wonder why it hasn't shown up yet. Ken, uh, one final question, if we could, and that is on what kind of economy we should be studying. Paul Krugman has talked about a wistfulness back to John Hicks in 1939, and people say, wait a minute, that was a different world, a different economy back then. You can't use those models now. What's the model that works for America within the unique America that the president's going to talk about? Are we a big giant open economy? Or are we more closed than we think?
1: We're not more closed than we think. We need to look to the future. And I, yes, we have problems that were better in the past, but I don't want to look to tired old solutions uh, for dealing with them. For example, I mm-hmm. think we need better education, but does that mean quadrupling the number of state colleges like Bernie Sanders has? Or does it mean, you know, digital education and finding new ways to reach broader audiences, adult education, many examples like this. We can do things differently and better, but that doesn't mean less.
0: Less, it doesn't mean less. This is what Bloomberg Surveillance is all about. Thank you so much. This was done spur of the moment, uh, folks, with Professor Rogoff and with Professor Tyson, and just wonderful to have both of you with your public service and academics uh, with us uh, today. She is from the Haas School, University of California, Berkeley. He is from Harvard University. (music) Mr. Frankel is a former governor. the bank of israel he works for a gentleman named jamie diamond jacob was out on the roof saying get that helicopter away get that helicopter away he is the uh, chairman of jp morgan international and truly provides economic perspective to the clients of james diamond and all of jp morgan of course uh, mr frankel doing a little bit of economic research a few years ago at chicago so Dr. Frankel, you don't put your PowerPoint away. Fang yesterday of China had his PowerPoint out, on, and, and it made worldwide headlines. John Jacob Frankel is the one guy who he's the one guy who doesn't need a PowerPoint when he talks to Bloomberg. Surveillance. What I would suggest, uh, uh, Professor Frankel, is here's the money question of the day, and it comes from one of our sophisticated uh, uh, listeners. Who is a currency manipulator
3: now? That's a loaded question, isn't it? It is a very loaded question. And uh, the truth of the matter is, it's extremely difficult to answer that question, even in theory. You know, when you have a picture that is hanged on the wall, and then it falls, who who is the fault? The wall's fault? The picture's fault? The nail's fault? The combinations thereof? Now, of course not all analogies are good enough to explain the complexity of this question because the truth of the matter is when monetary policy is uh, Mm -hmm. becoming very, very loose, naturally the value of the currency that is being uh, printed and supplied is diminishing. That's the reason why prices go up and that's the reason why the currency depreciates in the foreign exchange market. Now was this a currency manipulator? The normal answer is, we need to know what was the intent. If the intent was to boost the economy, then people will say it is not a currency manipulator. If the intent was to depreciate the currency, then it is. It is only an example why it is complex. The question, the point of the matter is, I really think right. we should shift the discussion from nominal exchange rate, s as is being now discussed into real exchange rate namely what are the factors that determine the international competitiveness of a country not of a currency of a country a country that is highly productive is president trump taking away our international competitiveness president trump has not yet started doing what the what the president? Well, he's putting tariffs
0: do. on you know little things like that. I know you don't want to I talk don't, about Washington. Well, machines, I can but... tell
3: you, I am in general against anything that may look like a trade and war. And Mr.
0: Diamond said that as well.
3: Yes, but I want to say that uh, I rather have a discussion rather than shooting the guns. I want to tell you that right. I, th- I think, for example, that the U.S. Uh, threats of leaving NAFTA right. makes no sense to me. I think that the that the fact that the u s did not sign the TtPA, et cetera. Right. is not good I, the fact that both candidates for presidency Hillary clinton and trump well, so protectionist in their rhetoric is not good because it basically gives a message also to the American people that somebody is there to deprive us. We are not. Okay. We need to compete. If, we need to improve.
0: If you're just joining us, folks, uh, Jacob Frankel with us from J.P. Morgan Chase. We welcome all of you worldwide uh, to our studios in New York with John Farrell. I'm Tom Keane at the World Economic Forum meetings in Davos. And Dr. Frankel has been incredibly generous with his time today. I'm looking at the Bloomberg Terminal. And whether it's a fancy guy like me or our most basic listener, currencies are on the move. How does a pro like you define Jean-Claude Trichet's brutal moves? What does that really mean? And are we in the middle of a brutal move right now?
3: If a brutal move means a large move, then you, it's in the eyes of the beholder, what is very large, very large, very, very, very brutal, etc. Again, I think that what we should do is create a situation where a sharp moves of the currency do not have sharp effects. namely develop the mechanisms to uh, protect investors from sharp moves develop the futures markets, develop the forwards market, develop the hedging approaches. And not everyone needs to be a speculator in the foreign exchange market. It's too complex.
0: Within that is the corporate response. You know, we all learn the J-curve out of David Begg's classic textbook or Dornbusch Fisher-Stars and the other basic textbook. Does the old-style currency trade dynamics still work, or are we to another regime where Maurice Absfeld and Ken Rogoff got to gotta go write a whole new book?
3: is it a new world well the world has evolving and you know what Uh, in many many areas new chapters are being written my only advice as an old timer is to say don't throw the old textbooks away they have a Mm -hmm. lot of wisdom to teach us yes do learn from the most recent experience by adding chapters but not displace the old textbook so i believe that we have a cumulative experience that comes from many, many years. Right. Very few countries were able to gain right. competitiveness through currency manipulation.
0: And I want to make very clear here, folks, it, it, that it, I call him Professor Frankel still from his iconic research of years ago. He's in a delicate position. He's with J. P. Morgan Chase International. Obviously, he's vising Mr. Diamond. He can't talk about that. That's what you do at banks. And at the same time, as a former governor of a major central bank, he really doesn't want to talk central bankers. So let's do that right now. Mr. Draghi, Mr. Kuroda, the current governor of the Bank of Israel, they have to respond to that minutiae headline. I mean, I remember responding, seeing people respond to Brazil's currency interventions of years ago how do the players like you respond to a secretary of treasury suggesting a weak dollar policy
3: as i say i did not uh, hear i did not hear what the secretary actually said fair what i can say is something in principle you do not gain sustainable long-term competitiveness by just weakening your currency it will be eroding and it okay. will be eroded very quickly on the contrary it can be counterproductive because it will deflect the attention right. from the deeper issues of how to improve well, long-term competitiveness gonna,
0: this is what davos is all about folks and frankly bloomberg surveillance the honor of being here with jacob frankel and earlier ken rogoff really speaks to my team and what they do to drag these people away uh, is uh, mr frankel Uh, Was with his colleague, Mr. Diamond. This is a wonderful visit. And, and folks, this is about health care. It's about the profitability of health care. And it's such a large part of all of our lives. I just really can't say enough about it. Joining us now is a gentleman of great extinction. He uh, says we may live to 120, and he is cut and chiseled at the August age of 69 years old and holding. It is well, How do you do it? You walk in here, Michael Niedorf, and, you know, is it the air in St. Louis? Is there it, is it something about the Midwest and your work in healthcare that makes you look the, uh, the, the youth that you talk about when you're on panels here? I, I think it's
4: the uh, travel and talking to people like you. Okay. Well, but, you know, I mean, the people that are young
0: and aggressive. And... Yeah, I mean, I mean, we'll talk about St. Louis here in a bit, but I have to talk about a stock that is in this highest accolade, Danaher-like. You just continue to make money. In the last ten years, your stock has gone up twenty-one percent uh, per year, and yet you're in a business that I'm told doesn't make any money. Healthcare is terrible. Nobody makes money. How do you make revenues and profits? That generates that stock performance in an industry that never makes money well, how do you do we, that we've maintained that the
4: highest quality of care is the least expensive we work hard we have great medical management systems that help to ensure that the doctors have the information and most importantly we have systems that are becoming predictive and allow you to be interdictive so that if you if you know somebody's potassium is going up you know he's at risk for a heart attack and you can get ahead of the curve So it's really all about determining that somebody has a condition before it becomes a major problem.
0: We just had in the president, the leader of New York University's wonderful hospital in New York. I'm going to ask you the same question I asked that physician. How do you do the revolution we're all having in healthcare and keep the doctors and nurses happy? I believe they're the providers of it, aren't they? Yes. Well, we have always viewed doctors
4: as our product, not a partner but our product. And you if you're smart about it, you take very good care of your product. How do you do that? Do you incentivize them with salary? Is it tickets to the St. Louis Blues? I mean, no. what do you do? No, what we do is we give them information that allows them to be more effective and more productive. We pay them fairly, not excessively, mm-hmm. not underpaying, but we, we try to pay them fairly. And we try to provide information that just generally helps them understand what we're all trying to achieve together.
0: Where do we stand in this nation with health care? You're knee-deep in it. You have decades of experience away from the media hot air of the Affordable Care Act and the eight tangents off of it. Are you happy with where we're going? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful.
4: I think the, uh, the uh, Affordable Care Act, of course, we've done very well with. We're the largest provider, and we grew significantly in January. With the, uh, and it's
0: just about putting the, units through the door. I mean, the, the Affordable Care Act gives more people more coverage, which puts more units through and
4: the door. We, and we need that. We, I mean, it's a, it is an entitlement in this country, health care. So we work on that, and, and that, that's very important. But I am, I am optimistic right. that systems. And the approach over time right. between the cost under control. I want to uh, I was
0: completely switch gears on you to your exceptional leadership to the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. How do we maintain classical music in this nation? I asked Gary Parr, uh, with all of his relationship with the New York Philharmonic, the same thing. How do we maintain orchestras <clears throat> for kids on YouTube, how do we let them know who Mendelssohn is, Tchaikovsky is? How do we let them know the more modern classical music? What's the path to the future? I think you have to do several
4: things. One, you have to do things to encourage them to come into the hall and hear music. You start with youth orchestras, but you also have members of the orchestra go out into the community in small groups and whet the appetite of youth. We, uh, My wife started a program. She's On the executive committee now. She started a program, Experience the uh, Music, uh, and and other programs that get children engaged at a very young age with what music is all about and brings
0: it to life. Do we need a Leonard Bernstein that gave us that magic years ago? Remember that? Oh,
4: I do. And uh, we we had uh, Leonard Slatkin in St. Louis that did a lot of that. Yeah. And it takes that kind of conduct. It takes that kind of Sh- Seiji
0: Ozawa in Boston Man. or whatever. Even David Robertson, who's yeah. just stepping down the next year. Yeah. You know, they have that magic. Well, very good. This has been wonderful. Michael Dendorf, thank you so much. He's with Centene, of course, uh, CNC uh, uh, in uh, health care, and, of course, out of St. Louis. I'm Tom in Davos, and now what is an annual visit with somebody who I think is at three or four occupations or jobs in each of his annual visits. Anthony Scaramucci used to play for the New York Mets, and he uh, joins now on a most interesting and historic day for uh, the Trump administration. Of course, Mr. Scaramucci was a former communications director for uh, the president. I believe he was in the media last year a little bit. Uh, but... Here comes the president of course, Secretary Mnuchin today driving dollar weaker with a weak dollar policy. We'll get to all that. Let's clear up things first. I have heard a little bit of percolation that you may rejoin the administration. Is there any truth to that?
5: I, there's a, no truth to that 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 I'm aware of. I mean, I've, I've heard that as well. You mentioned the number of jobs that I had. You should also mention the fact that I don't have any W-2s from any of those jobs, Tom, because – I did all those jobs without making any money. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. So, hey, amen, right? I guess that's good news for my uh, my accountant.
0: Within this is the idea of advising the president. Have you spoken to him or his small entourage coming to Davos to give them best Davos practices? Because you and Mr. Cone, I would suggest, are the two with the most mm-hmm. experience.
5: Yeah, listen, I, I uh, obviously have a very close personal relationship with Secretary Mnuchin. We worked closely together on the campaign, know each other a long time. Uh, Gary and I know each other from Goldman, uh, but they didn't need any advice or uh, uh, from me. I mean, obviously, they're going to do great things here. I saw uh, Governor Perry, or now Secretary Perry, this morning. Uh, I, I think the president's message here is going to be a very interesting message in the following sense that people – uh, won't predict what he's going to say. He is, by nature, he actually has a duality to his personality. He wants to engage in the global system, and he wants to be part of global growth and prosperity. Uh, that's not really the media narrative. At the same time he's doing that, he wants to put American workers and middle class and lower middle class families first. And so, how, do you handle that's the the, how
0: do you handle the President of the United States where you are— or- I'd say your adversary, General Kelly, or all the good people of the administration get a script written and he goes off script. Is that the biggest Trump risk of the speech?
5: I, I actually think that is the benefit of him being president. And I, I, I would say that uh, 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 we we found in the campaign, I found in my life experience with him, letting him be himself, uh, is where you really see the true creative disruptive nature of his personality mm-hmm. uh reigning him in men trying to box him in uh, uh hasn't worked won't work uh and will probably lead to uh uh people yeah. uh, uh, either they'll adapt uh, because he's not going to adapt to them either they'll adapt right or he'll have to help, he'll have to get help from elsewhere I can see
0: you in the room uh, with Mr Cohn and a few other selected worthy saying okay there's two audiences mr president what do we want to say to the global audience, the Davos elite? How does he speak to the people in Happy Valley?
5: Well, listen, I, I, I think it's a I think it's the same message. The message is, is that uh, uh, helping out... So mid- he has the
0: same message to the global elite I think so. that he does to his core constituency? I, I think so. How can explain that?
5: Okay, so I'm going to explain it. Because if you're here with the global elite, you say, listen, my goal is to help middle-class and lower-middle-class families in the United States with my policies that will lead to more disposable income, and more opportunity. If Saudi, if, if, if China, as an example, is the Saudi Arabia of manufacturing, in many ways over the last 70 years since the Second World War, the United States is the Saudi Arabia of consumerism. Right. More aggregate demand for people in the United States will lead to more global growth, more mm-hmm. global opportunity, and more global prosperity. And so I actually do think it's an identical message, And I don't think that's a threatening message to quote-unquote globalists. If anything, um, he's leading the charge here with the largest delegation uh, that the U.S. government has put together. Do you know how large this entourage is, this delegation? Well, he's got got 10 uh, members of the cabinet and members of the White House here in addition to himself, meaning 10 senior members in addition to all their understaff. And so I do know it's the largest uh, delegation that we've had in history as it relates to an American delegation here uh, in Davos. So so to me, uh, again, that's refreshing. That's unpredictable. Uh, you and I did a show here a year ago. A lot mm-hmm. of people here would have said, okay, uh, you know, no chance that the president will, President Trump will be here in Davos anytime soon. His last two predecessors did not come to Davos. Uh, and so I think the first opportunity that he had to be here uh, to make a statement, give a speech, uh, shows you uh, who he really is and the character and the quality that he that he has as a person.
0: Neil Ferguson has the best essay I've seen so far in the Washington Post writing about this, and he gives the president great credit, and he gets it right up top as well, where he says the president exemplifies the ugly American. Davos will accept him anyways. Why will they agree with the president's issues? Is it just about less regulation and more growth, or is there something more subtle than that? Well, listen,
5: I mean, I, I, I probably, Neil, Neil's a close friend of mine, but I probably don't agree with the whole ugly American comment. I, I would just say.
0: Wait, uh, I'm the ugly you, American. Be careful what you you're, say.
5: You're, you're an ugly American? Yeah, I'm an, All an ugly right, American. Well, I mean, you're a tall, ugly American. Okay, your listeners can't <laughs> see how tall you are. My God, I need four phone books to sit here. Uh, here, here Here's what I would say. Uh, the, if there is subtlety. The subtlety Mm -hmm. is that we're going to cooperate in the global community. The subtlety is we're going to engage in the global system and the world's uh, uh, organizations, the broader world's organizations like the UN, World Economic Forum, et cetera, to help maintain, stabilize, and increase global peace and prosperity. But we're not going to leave working class families and other people behind, which unfortunately, when you analyze globalism, that has happened.
0: I want to ask one last question, and you're not going to like it, but you've done so much for charity on Wall Street, I'm going to bring it up. Mm -hmm. There is a Davos stunned feel today about the cover article in the Financial Times, Madison Marriage, over a charity dinner at the Dorchester in London that wasn't very nice. It was about charity guys and all that with hired hostesses and that. You know the uproar in the United States over Vice, and Emily Chang of Bloomberg has this important new book coming out on social. You've always been known for running class stuff. Is this stuff over? Is is the is the sleaziness of some of these charity events? Mm-hmm. Is it just over? Yeah. With well, this FT I mean, article today.
5: Well, listen. i First of all, I appreciate you saying that because I really try to I, I really try to do this stuff straight up and 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 honest and with high integrity. I think so because I think what's. I think happened it's over. Now, I, I think, agree. I think it's over because I think what's happened now. The world of social media has put a magnifying glass on everybody. Yeah. And I think that some of the seediness uh, is going to be exposed in that magnifying glass and, and rayed out like yeah. we, the way we used to do with ants when we were kids.
0: Anthony Scaramucci, thank you so much. Great to An be annual here, Tom. update here. He'll be a little occupied over the next 48 hours. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast.